everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Tanish Hollins, who is the Executive Director of Californians for Safety and Justice. Today, we're largely going to talk about the San Francisco recall. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So just kind of briefly, um, can you tell us about uh, Californians for Safety and Justice? Sure. Californians for Safety and Justice is an organization that advocates for uh, smart public safety approaches that don't rely on uh, incarceration. So our goal Um, is to advance safety in our communities by investing in prevention, rehabilitation, um, and trauma recovery. We want to address the root causes of crime as a way of keeping communities safe. Um, We also want to provide safe uh, pathways back to citizenship for folks who have been impacted by the criminal legal system. And we want to provide solutions for uh, people who identify as victims and survivors of crime. So we want to remove barriers so that they get the access to healing and support that they deserve as well. And can you tell us a bit about how you got involved in uh, this issue? Sure. Um, So I have um, been a community organizer for most of my life before I even knew what that was, Um, just because I'm a person that's passionate about community, specifically my community. Um, I'm a native of San Francisco, um, you know, grew up during a time where I saw a lot of beauty in my community. I'm a native of Bayview Hunters Point, um, but I also saw a lot of challenges impacting my community. And I didn't quite like the narrative um, about my community and why these things were happening. Um, So I got involved, you know, just kind of the truth telling of bringing the voices of the people who are impacted by the issues that everyone said they were concerned about into the conversation. Um, you know, people who had been directly impacted by crime and violence, um, you know, people who were working hard in our communities, teachers, business owners. I thought it was important to hear those voices if we were going to be talking about the issues of safety. So this has been, you know, a lifelong passion of being involved. Um, but the issue of crime and violence has hit close to home for me throughout my life. Um, too often. Um, And most recently, over the past couple of years, I lost um, two of my siblings to gun violence, two of my brothers. Um, And so that definitely gave me just a different level of insight on, you know, the issues that I care about and that impact my community. Um, You know, a journey as a crime survivor, crime victim, my family being impacted and just understanding 
the barriers that the systems sometimes have in place uh, because of policy or because of rules um, that prevent people from getting help. And so I've been passionate about this for a long time, but I got connected to Californians for Safety and Justice in around 2017. Uh, with the goal of getting more people involved in this conversation and serving our communities. Um, and then kind of transitioning to the issue at hand, uh, what, what's your take on uh, the San Francisco uh, recall of uh, DHA Sabodine? That's a good question. Um, I'm actually quite frustrated by the whole recall effort. Um, and it's not, although I, I do respect Chesa in, you know, his position, it's, just, it's less about him and more about um, the political tactics and the organizing um, that's happening in my city. You know, I feel like a lot of it um, are political agendas and distractions that it's quite frankly pitting communities against each other, heightening tensions, um, you know, building off a lot of assumptions and using the issue of public safety as kind of the scapegoat um, to rationalize the need to bring in quote unquote new leadership. Um, and I question this new leadership, especially if I have not seen the investment into our communities and specifically in the communities that have been most impacted by the crime and violence in the city. Um, so it's frustrating and it's, it's disheartening to see the way that's impacting our community specifically. So we've been watching this for a few years now. Um, from your perspective, what has changed since 2019 that has led to kind of this backlash building against uh, the DA that just got elected in 2019 and then took office in 2020? And like two months after he took office, uh, COVID hits and everything changed. Uh, so what's kind of changed or has anything changed? You know, I don't know. I mean, I'm obviously not a political analyst and um, can't give a, you know, formal position on, you know, any of the politics of this. But what I will say is just someone who's experiencing and observing it, the demographics of San Francisco have been changing for over a decade now. Um, and that, I think that has a lot to do with what we see happening in this particular, um, you know, the, the challenges that this particular candidate is experiencing. Um, you know, there are folks who want to be empowered, they want representation for their interests, whatever they may be. Um, and I think that that's definitely gotten stronger, especially as we've been dealing with the impact of COVID. There's a lot of real frustration that people have, businesses have been affected. We definitely have an issue with public safety, but we also have to be honest that a lot of the issues that we're dealing with, or the, at least the ones that people say they're most concerned about, um, homelessness, um, you know, seeing folks struggling with addiction and mental illness uh, on the streets, um, and that relating to some property crimes and, and things like that, uh, a lot of it's being exacerbated or even conflated with the issue of the impact of the pandemic. And quite frankly, I feel like there are a lot of folks who are um, using it as a scapegoat uh, to push the rhetoric um, around what is and isn't happening in San Francisco. Um, so it's turned out to be pretty much a power grab. And when we have, you know, huge crises like the one that we've experienced with the pandemic, for some people it creates opportunity. I think that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, the, 
that this issue is so much on the forefront now. And I say that as someone who has lived through, um, you know, time periods in San Francisco where we actually had much higher rates of violent crime, you know, where we've seen, um, you know, the impact of homicides on, on specific neighborhoods or at least the numbers um, being very high. But, you know, if we look at the numbers, the numbers will tell the truth in that arrest rates have been low, clearance rates for certain types of crime have been low um, for many years and not just recently. And again, you know, I, I think that that narrative um, really does serve, uh, you know, political interest for folks who see themselves as um, the next leaders or the next, or see themselves as the next voice for what San Francisco needs. And, and you mentioned the homicide rate, and I find it really interesting if you start looking uh, at comparisons, because first of all, uh, homicides have gone up in pretty much every area of the country. Um, and, and then if you compare, you know, San Francisco to Oakland, Oakland's had its homicide rate go up much higher, or San Francisco to Sacramento, um, the homicide rate has gone up much higher. And yet, you know, in Oakland, you don't see Nancy O'Malley, um, you know, facing, um, you know, challenges because of the homicide rate. In Sacramento, there was a recent uh, mass shooting and it hasn't really rubbed off on uh, Anne-Marie Schubert, the DA there. But in San Francisco, it seems like everybody's personalized everything against uh, the DA. Um, you know, as somebody who lives there, uh, you know, how do you account for that or do you? Well, I mean, I think that there are um, frustrations that folks have. You know, not everyone was a huge fan of the current DA. Um, everyone had, you know, their own different thoughts about folks that they wanted to see in leadership. Um, and now we have, we have the leadership that we have. Uh, but to your point about, you know, the dis kind of the disproportionate response when we see homicide rates increasing in lots of different cities, not just San Francisco, but there seem to be a magnifying glass on this one particular candidate's uh, or one particular elected's rather um, leadership. I think that we should look at that further, right? And really examine why that is. Um, you know, San Francisco is unique um, in a lot of ways um, from other cities in that we're a city and a county in that, um, you know, the, the population that we have here and then some of the challenges that we've had that have, you know, changed our demographics and our neighborhoods um, and folks who would be recognized as stakeholders in the city. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, I think that we should be critical of you know, every region where we're seeing increases in crime, but not seeing the kind of response that we need to deal with the root cause of it. Um, and anytime we're spending most of our time scrutinizing one particular candidate, when we can look back or elected, forgive me, um, when we look back at kind of years um, of the issue and, and how it's impacted communities, I think that requires more conversation. Um, and you know, from your perspective, I, I know you said that, um, you, you know, for you, this is more about, you know, the impact of, uh, you know, kind of the polarization of the community. But um, 
why in general are you are you backing uh, the DA in in this recall fight? And what kinds of policies uh, of his um, are you supportive of? So yeah, again, you know, for me, it's less about the current DA and more about the issue that we are working to address. And I do believe that um, the DA Bodine has the issues at the center, right? Um, you know, the work of reforming the criminal justice system um, is hard work and it is iterative and it's not gonna happen overnight. Um, we are trying to work within a system that is broken and flawed. Um, and it's impossible to do that in two years time. It's impossible to do that um, when you are uh, in a position where you're constantly having to respond to and defend um, the work of your office, you know, your character, your intentions. Um, and so I want to see uh, us provide an opportunity for the person that was elected because the voters chose him to actually have the time to implement the changes that we all said that we wanted to see. And we demonstrated that through our vote. Um, and so I think that is important to name, right? That it's less about my own personal perception of, of the current DA and more about the fact that the voters um, identified who they wanted there. And while we all may be concerned about public safety, that we're going to have to work with the person that uh, represents what we have as a vision for public safety to make that real. Um, and I think the recall is just an unnecessary distraction. And quite frankly, those resources and time and energy could be better spent actually responding to the issues that we have here. You know, we have an issue with uh, with many things in San Francisco. And it's, I don't think that it's fair to put it all on the shoulders of one elected. No, it's interesting. I'm, you know, what most people would call an outsider to this. And yet, um, prior to Chesa getting elected, I spent a lot of time uh, covering the courts in San Francisco. And I got to see what the system looked like before he arrived. And um, it's really interesting, like uh, you were on a uh, forum a few weeks ago uh, with some of the opponents and um, the, uh, you know, those former, um, you know, DAs, um, I, I got to see them in court <laughs> and their record in court wasn't great either. Um, and so, you know, what, what we got to see in the courts prior to Chesa was a lot of prosecutorial misconduct, a lot of police misconduct, a lot of video of police uh, just uh, beating people and uh, mistreating people and, and violating people's rights and the DA's office kind of uh, almost rubber stamping that. And so um, I kind of wonder, you know, if, if some of these opponents really knew anything that was happening prior to Bodine getting elected. It's hard to say, you know, and again, I'm not a prosecutor and as someone who is observing from the outside without a real political investment in this, I think that um, there's a couple of things that we've got to know. I mean, even going back to the, the debate that I participated in a few weeks back. When we talked about reform, there seemed to be consensus that 
reform was the right way to go, that we need to make some changes. Now, there was a lot of, you know, accusation and questions that were being asked about particular cases and, you know, procedures. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, each case is going to be unique. There are a lot of variables and kind of back to the core of this, the system is broken. So even if you have the right folks doing the quote unquote right thing, you're not necessarily going to get the right outcome. Um, there are clearly issues, um, you know, that the prosecutors have and have named, and there are issues that are within the department, um, and they have an impact on people's lives. And that's the the point of entry for me, right? Is the point where we have an impact on survivors, where we have an impact um, even on the folks who, um, you know, are being held responsible for the crimes that they've committed. We can't afford. Um, you know, to allow, you know, all this room for political rhetoric and finger pointing to get us away from the fact that we do have an issue with public safety. And if people are not going to do their jobs and do them well, and if people are not going to be committed to the issue of safety beyond just the elected, then we're not going to achieve it. So we're really wasting time. And that's, you know, that's, that's what I learned from participating in that debate in most conversations about this issue. And one thing I learned was, you know, they they talked about the fact that the system was broken, but it didn't seem like they really understood um, what reform was or why the system was broken. It, it almost felt like lip service to, yeah, okay, we all understand that the system's broken. Now let's bash the DA some more. Well, I mean, that's what debates are for, which is why I don't like participating in them because it's, you know, it's not, it's not the way that I would like to go about, it's not the best investment of my time as someone who's working directly on these issues from a, in a, from a different lens, right? Um, and that's what typically happens, you know, that we end up getting caught up in the middle um, of, again, the finger pointing and, you know, trying to scapegoat accountability and the truth is the you know, issues in the DA's office existed before the current DA, um, before DA Gascon, which you know, I heard a lot of praise um, and didn't necessarily see um, that administration being any better, right? They were faced with a lot of challenges. Um, it just that, it's just that criminal justice reform wasn't the top issue of debate at that time. Right. But definitely had issues with public safety, definitely had issues, um, you know, with victims and survivors feeling that um, they hadn't been served. And, you know, I think that depending on who's in the conversation, they will try to spin it a different way. But go back to the numbers and that. And I think that's what's important. Um, but, yeah, I hate debates for that reason. <laughs> um and, you know, talking about the numbers, I mean, I saw an article not that long ago where, you know, it kind of showed that um, overall crime hasn't necessarily gone up, but what's happened is that crime has shifted where it's happened. And so um, crime is affecting people that are, shall we say, um, you know, wealthier and whiter than uh, traditionally. And that seems to have uh, created a, a bigger impact than necessarily the whole system seeing crime go up. Well, I mean, we should, if we're talking specifically about San Francisco, then uh, I think that's relevant to say that the demographics of the city and the communities have definitely changed because 
you know, many of the folks who are native and particularly people of color have been displaced, you know, either through cost or um, through, you know, redevelopment. Um, you know, there's, there's been a displacement of the native communities, which is one of the challenges that we have as folks who are from here um, about who actually gets to claim stake ownership or, or ownership of this conversation. Um, and so, yeah, we do have folks who are being impacted. The types of crime that they're experiencing may be very different than the types of crime that we've experienced in black and brown communities and marginalized communities. Um, and my question is, where was the outrage and concern then? Because I've been doing this work for more than half my life and I don't recall seeing this type of investment. You know, in my mind, when the homicide rates were over 100 in San Francisco, that would have been the ideal time for people to be calling attention to the DA and to the police. I was around at those times and it, and it didn't happen, not in that way, not in this way. Um, and so it's, you know, with all of those different factors about who's here, um, you know, about who has the wealth, about who has a perception about, um, you know, the value of their voices. Um, and then again, who deserves to be safe? You know, I think this is 100% an equity conversation because you have people in, in communities of color that have been calling for safety for years. And we have been saying what our vision for safety is and what we've been getting as a response is more rhetoric around needing to be tough on crime. When we, when we have been very clear that the approaches that have been used haven't helped our communities, hasn't kept us safer, actually makes the problem worse. Um, so there are big issues here that I think are kind of unearthed when you listen to the voices around public safety right now, and especially in this conversation about the recall. Yeah, and I think that's a big issue because one of the problems that we see, you know, whether the issue is homelessness or drugs or, you know, quality of life issues, is that you have um, this massive disparity in wealth. And it seems like the wealthier people just want to sweep the problem away from them. Um, you know, it's not that they want the problem to go away necessarily. They just don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah, and you know, unfortunately, it's not just wealthy people. I mean, I'll I'll be honest. For sure, we have an issue, and I kind of named all those issues. But people are fatigued. You know, the, the especially coming through this pandemic. I won't say out of it because you know, as we just discussed, a lot of us have been personally impacted by COVID. We're still dealing with the impacts, the effects of it. Um, and there seems to be some cognitive dissonance around what that actually means and how it's affecting people. But I would say the majority of people are tired. They're tired. Um, they're tired of seeing bad news. They are tired of, you know, you know, seeing um, incidents highlighted um, where people are being harmed or, you know, their property is being taken away. Um, you know, they're, they're being flooded with, um, you know, just kind of propaganda around why it's happening. And so people are fatigued. And unfortunately, you know, it, a lot of folks are at the point where they just want something to happen. But if you go back to the numbers, uh, and we've done that, we've done that through surveying, we've done that through focus groups, we've done that through looking at, um, you know, voter responses. Um, the majority of folks in California agree there's a problem, they are tired, they do want to see a response, but they do agree that jail and prison hasn't necessarily been an effective response to this. They actually want to see 
something done about homelessness. They actually want to see people being treated for mental illness. They actually want to see um, less people on the street struggling with addiction. There's, there's alignment there. How we get there um, is what folks are struggling with right now. And again, conversations like the recall, putting so much attention on electeds um, and not on the issue is going to do nothing but keep us back. Um, we should be having more conversations about what the replacement approaches and systems look like for the issues that we say we care about. I'd much rather be in conversation about what the new infrastructure is for mental health, how exactly we're taking people off of the streets and getting them into supportive housing, how we're dealing with addiction so that we're not stepping over needles or seeing people lose their lives overdosing the fentanyl. Um, I would much rather be in those conversations. Yeah, and it, it it's just seems like focusing on the DA pushes us away from those conversations because most of the things you mentioned, the DA doesn't even have an impact on. Correct, because there are public health issues. And violence is a public health issue as well. And, ha you know, so I think that um, right now is the sleight of hand trick. And it's really playing on people's emotions and their vulnerability and their frustration. Um, and it's not fair. It's not fair, right? Um, we cannot expect the district attorney or the district attorney's office to address all those issues. That's not the appropriate response. And that's what my organization has um, been diligently trying to message to folks about criminal justice reform and about all these issues around safety. We have got to move to the appropriate response. We have to invest in the right approaches because the kind of lazy way of doing this for decades and lazy but intentional, way of addressing these issues for decades has been relying on jails and prisons and the criminal legal system. And it was the wrong approach. There for sure should be a response uh, for accountability for folks who break the law um, and engage in, you know, in, in selling drugs and in, in illegal activity. But the issue of addiction is a disease. The issue of homelessness is a social issue that requires more investment. The issue of mental health is a public health issue and is best addressed and served through a system that's actually going to help it. So that's where we need to get back to. So from, from your organization's perspective, you know, where should the focus be? Do you, do you want this to be a community-based effort or does it need to be a collaborative effort between the community and various uh, office holders? How do you want to see this done? It's going to take everyone. It has to. I mean, we don't have the replacement for a lot of what we need right now. So it's going to require all of us to work together. What we know from research and from listening to the people who are struggling with these issues and are most directly impacted by them and from the people who are responding to these issues is that number one, yes, the, the best ways um, and most effective ways to actually help uh, address this issue are is when the resources and support and services are available at community level with the least amount of restrictions and barriers as possible. And that's not the case right now. That's part of the reason why we have the challenges that we have is because there are too many restrictions. There are too many restrictions and eligibility criteria 
for victims and survivors to get the help that they need. There are too many barriers and restrictions to folks getting access to mental health. Same thing with addiction and recovery. And so that is what we are calling for. We're calling for the investments to go to the right infrastructure so that we can remove these barriers and folks can actually get help. help. Community level um, has proven time and time again to be the best approach. Community-based approaches, community access, folks who have lived experience. Um, I've heard it several times from people who have been formerly incarcerated, um, who come back and you know have paid their debt to society and are coming back and looking for ways to engage that it's important to have someone who's had that lived experience and who is on a pathway to recovering and to restoring their community to be a peer support for someone else who has that experience. The same thing for someone who's been a victim of a violent crime. Um, you have a life experience that um, is unique and that you need someone who understands that to help you and support you as you deal with the trauma, as you deal with um, you know, the, the different access points, um, you know, on your journey. And so we want to see more of that. We want to see resources actually going to solutions um, instead of money being back behind talking about the problem. Um, and how do you respond when uh, somebody says, look, you know, I understand all that, but I want to be able to walk down the street and feel safe. I would say I do too. Um, and I think that the question that we that I would ask that person then is, and what approach do we need to take in your mind to achieve that long term? And I think that's where we can get into a conversation about all the other things that I just mentioned, right? Like jail has been a Band-Aid solution. Folks funnel in and out of the criminal legal system back onto the streets. We can also go back in history to a time where we had tougher sentencing laws and people spent more time in jails and prisons and see whether or not that actually kept communities safe. And we know that it didn't. So while I understand the frustration, um, I think it's important that we humanize the issue. And I think we should all also just hold some understanding that the majority of people who walk the streets, no matter what community they come from, want to be safe. There's a dangerous perception that people who come from communities that are more impacted by these issues, crime, violence, we think about San Francisco, the Tenderloin, Baby Hunters Point, um, the Mission, areas where we've seen um, a higher concentration, of these, higher concentration of these issues, there's a perception that the people who are from these neighborhoods and communities don't care about safety that they're not interested, that they allow it in some way that they're complicit. Um, and I think it's important for us to understand history, that it's not by accident that these certain areas of the city are concentrated uh, with these issues uh, or with people who are struggling with these issues. And not everyone has that perspective. You know, we come from, we're in a society where people are hyper individual um, and the, their thoughts about what needs to happen are very much centered on what they need. Um, but I'm here for equity. I'm here. I'm here as you know, a, a voice in the conversation who wants to see um, safety for everyone. Uh, and right now, we are all in a very dangerous position. We we are seeing you know rises in homicide. We are seeing rises in suicide. We are seeing rises in fentanyl re related overdoses in San Francisco. We are seeing our youth and young adults 
struggling with diagnosed mental illness, untreated trauma. Um, we are struggling with, you know, people trying to make ends meet and being displaced um, and still struggling with the impact of COVID. And so I think that we all need to have some grace and compassion for each other. That might be asking a lot in a moment like this. So I would at least appeal for people to look at the numbers, do the research um, and use their common sense about whether or not uh, what you're asking for as it relates to safety will actually achieve it, not just for you, but for the communities that you say you care about. So I have to ask this question, um, you know, what's your sense for what's going to happen with this recall? I don't know. Um, what I see happening right now concerns me. Um, and regardless of the outcome, I think that it has shed a light on the very, on the intentionality of um, the folks who are organizing to create division in San Francisco. And that will outlet, that's going to last um, regardless of what happens with the recall. Um, you know, I'm watching the numbers just like other folks are, but again, my investment in this is really understanding the impact that it will have on our communities right now, which are dealing with this issue, already dealing with the issue of public safety. Um, and the ways that people are showing up in this conversation concern me um, as if, you know, certain populations, um, safety is more important than others. So I am hoping that we land at a place where the current DA can continue to do his job. I'm hoping that we land at a place that the people who claim they care about public safety actually get involved in making that real outside of this political debate that everyone is wrapped up in. Um, and I hope that the folks who are behind organizing a lot of this understand that we are watching them and that we are clear about what their investment is and that we are going to continue to stand in front of our community and call for what we know is going to lead to safety for all of us. All right. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your thoughts on San Francisco and the recall in, uh, of uh, Chase Bodine. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tanish Hollins from Californians for Safety and Justice. The recall election for Chase Bodine will be June the 7th. Um, everybody will be watching closely to see what happens with that and what that means for criminal justice reform. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening, Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.